you'd like to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be returning to Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 4. And this, uh, this new chapter marks a, a new piece of Paul's letter. Uh, the majority of his letters start off with, uh, with a chunk, essentially, of theological education. Uh, he, he starts off making sure that everybody understands the basis for their faith, the basis for what he's about to, uh, to continue to talk about. Uh, and and this, this chapter division for us today marks that transition where Paul is beginning to move from telling us about what God has done for us to telling us what we must do as a result of that. Um, as, as one commentator put it, this is the transition from doctrine to duty. Um, and so the, the first three chapters, he's taught us these great, deep, beautiful theological truths about who God is. And now we get to see what it is that we must do uh, as, a, as a result of that, as an outflowing of that. And so as a result of that, things are going to get a little bit more personal, a little bit more pointed from here on out. Uh, so it might get a little uncomfortable, which is good. Uh, being uncomfortable is good for us. Uh, so let's, let's read the first six verses there in, in chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul starts off this passage uh, essentially almost the same way that he starts off chapter 3. And he does that by pointing out that he is a prisoner for the Lord. Uh, and, and he's doing this here to give him a little bit of authority in regards to what he is uh, about to say. Uh, and it gives him authority, being a prisoner gives him authority because, remember, he was imprisoned for his proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles. So the church in Ephesus were the direct beneficiaries of that. Paul was in prison for them. Uh, and in addition to that, his imprisonment was a living example of what he meant uh, to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. This was the level of dedication that Paul was expecting uh, of, the, of the church that he was writing to. And he's saying, this is, this is not just something that I am telling you to do, but this is something that I am living. I am the example. Uh, he says in... Um, in 1 Corinthians, um, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so this is another one of those examples where Paul is saying, this is what I've done in pursuit of the gospel, in faithfulness to the calling that God has placed on my life. You can follow my example in that. Uh, and, he, and so he calls them 
to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, to walk, therefore, in light of our calling. And so that's in light of all of those spiritual blessings that we talked about in chapter one, his election of us from before time, our adoption, our redemption, our forgiveness, our inheritance, the good news, the gospel of our salvation. It's in light of the work that he has done in us, in that even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive in Christ. It's in light of the way that he's reconciling all men to himself and all men to each other. And so therefore, so because of these things, because of all of these truths that he has spent the time to enumerate, because of these things, we need to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so what is that calling that he's talking about? Uh, And in a word, that calling is hope. And that's hope. That's not just a wish. That's not just a desire. It's not just a longing. But it's a living hope. First, uh, Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 1. Uh, He says, according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So our calling is to a hope, not just a hope for this world, but a hope for all eternity, not just a hope that's founded on any sort of human uh, frailty, but on Jesus Christ himself, God with us, our living hope, imperishable, undefiled and unfading, a hope in the return of Christ and that time when all wrongs will be made right, the physical world made new, we will dwell with him forever. And so it's in light of this hope, our calling, that we are called to walk. So we are called to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Uh, and so this is, this is kind of a summary statement for uh, the, the, next, uh, the next few verses here. Uh, and that idea of walking, that's the general direction of your life. Um, it, uh, it's not, it's not a, uh, a, um, looking for the right word here. Uh, it's not that you will never misstep in your walk as a Christian. It's not that you will never stumble. Uh, it's not that, uh, you might not have to backtrack and go back the way you came to get back on the path, but the general overall direction of your life should be in a manner worthy worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Uh, So we are a people who are called to a living hope in an eternal God and a faith in the work that he has done to bring us out of our slavery to death and sin and into that newness of life. And so we must walk in a manner that's worthy of these gifts. So if we're given this hope, this great treasure, this good news, this calling, our understanding of that, our internalizing of that should guide and direct how we live our lives and how we walk. Um, Have you ever met somebody who has just acquired a new skill or a new hobby? Um, 
most of my formal training is, is with computers. And so, you know, when, when I first learned about programming, everything that I saw, every problem that I saw, there, well, I could write a program that would fix that, right? Or, you know, somebody who learns how to build something, they want to, they want to build something to fix that. They want to, or, um, uh, I had a friend who became an EMT and, and everything that he saw was, Oh, well, you know, I, I got a bandage for that. Or, you know, I can, I got a splint for that. I can fix that. Um, they were eager to make the world a better place by the sharing and the application of that knowledge and of their skills. They were trying to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they had. And so if they were trying to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that they had, which was a noble and a good, but ultimately futile, and ultimately minor calling, how much more so should we walk in a manner that's befitting the sons and daughters of God? So the question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk in that sort of a worthy manner? Uh, and the answer is, it looks like Christ. Christ is our example of what it looks like. And then Paul goes on to enumerate uh, some of the specifics of, of what that looks like. Uh, he starts off um, in humility and gentleness. Uh, now, one of the best examples, and, and this is one of my favorite scripture passages, one of the best examples of what it means to walk in humility uh, is found in uh, Philippians 2. Uh, this is in uh, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul gives this command, and then he goes on to give an illustration. Have this mind on yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so through his birth, his life and his death, Christ was for us the ultimate example of humility. He surrendered what was rightfully his to be able to give to us that which we could never get on our own. And Paul also, in his willingness to become a prisoner for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the people that he loved, he demonstrated humility. He considered that those people that he was proclaiming the gospel to, the Gentiles, were more important than he was. Their salvation was more important than his freedom. So we have these great examples of what it means to walk in humility. Humility and gentleness. Uh, I think the King James translates it meekness. Uh, and that's not to say that this, is, um, that this is calling us to weakness and to impotence, but rather um, it's calling us to, a, to, a, to a, a moderate role. Strength under control. Not weak or impotent, but not, also not domineering or abusive. Strength under control. Uh, 
these two words, uh, or these two ideas of humility and meekness are used uh, by Jesus in, in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. Uh, he says, take my yoke, take my, uh, take my obligation upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so when we see that Christ is gentle and lowly in heart, he was willing to confront the sin and the hypocrisy in the religious establishment of the day. Uh, you know, sometimes with violent deeds and harsh words, but he always provided comfort and care to those who came to him in humility and in brokenness. Uh, in Matthew twelve nineteen, uh, this is um, quoting Isaiah 42. So I get two references there. Um, it says, He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So we've got that imagery there, a bruised reed, a smoldering wick. So these are metaphors for the people in the world who are hurting, who are broken, who are beaten down, who are traumatized by the sin in this world. And it would be easy, either intentionally or unintentionally, to break a bruised reed or to snuff out a smoldering wick. But that's not what it says that Christ does. He has gentleness, and he deals with that bruising and smoldering wick in a gentle fashion. So this idea of humility and of gentleness, um, it was countercultural in, in Paul's day, just as it is today, really. Um, to, the, to the people in the church in Ephesus, they would have thought as thought of humility as uh, as something to be avoided. In their culture, only slaves were supposed to be humble. Uh, you were supposed to build yourself up to make much of yourself. And that's true of us today, isn't it? You know, we're supposed to be looking out for number one first. We're supposed to be making sure that we have all of the advantages that we possibly can in this world, to make sure that our rights are respected, that our ability to choose our own path is protected. Because nothing should violate that principle of me being able to live the very best life that I can. But in contrast to that, we have the example of Christ. He did not cling to his power. He did not cling to his authority, his glory, or his honor. He laid all of these things aside to become a man, taking up that life only to lay it down again. He didn't even cling to that little bit of dignity and honor that he had as an image bearer of God in that human form on the cross. He took all of that and he laid it down, taking on himself the wrath that I had stored up for me. And so as he laid down his life, he also took it up again as the first fruits of the resurrection, giving us our hope. And so through that hope, because of that hope, he was comforting those who needed to be comforted, but also confronting those who needed to be confronted in humility and gentleness, using his strength 
using his power and authority only for the benefit of others, not for the benefit of himself. Humility and gentleness. With patience, bearing with one another in love. So patience, uh, the, the way that, that Paul uses it here is long-suffering, specifically towards those who antagonize us. Anybody ever have somebody that rubs you the wrong way? Has anybody ever been the person that rubs somebody the wrong way? I'll own that. And then bearing with, that's a tolerance from those or a tolerance of those who are different from us. Which is everybody except for us. Every person in this world is different from who you are. You're made unique. Which means that there's the opportunity, there's lots of opportunity, isn't there, for conflict with people who are different from us. But we are called to patience. We are called to bear with other people. Uh, And in 1 Timothy 1, Paul gives us the reason for that. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is pointing out that he has that burdensome nature. He is that person who tries God's patience. But in him is the example of Christ being patient with us. God has no reason, no requirement to be patient with Paul, but he was. And so that is the example that we have in our interactions with each other. To be patient, even though there isn't necessarily a reason for that. Even if it's that person who is antagonizing us. Because God was patient with us, we need to be patient with other people. And then we have the tie that binds all of this together. All of these attitudes have to be tied together with love. Humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance, they all have to be founded in. They all have to be rooted in love. So I would say that they don't make sense any other way. You know, if you have humility without love for other people, it's just it's self-deprecation and, and, and ultimately depression to believe that you are nothing without doing that for the purpose of building up other people. Gentleness without love is just weakness and passivity. Patience and forbearance without being rooted in love is just sloth and inaction. So without the foundation of love, none of these thoughts and attitudes are really of any worth, of any value. And it's important to note that uh, these are not just outward behaviors, Paul isn't just calling us to do certain things, to check off certain boxes, but he's telling us to have these attitudes, these attitudes of the heart. Being outwardly humble, but inwardly prideful, is just as damaging as being outwardly prideful. Perhaps even more so, 
Because when you do that, you're deceiving others. You are living a disintegrated life, a life that does not have integrity. And that's true for all of these other attitudes as well. They are attitudes that are demonstrated by our actions, but they have to begin in the heart. They have to begin with that new heart that only God can give us. And so because we are loved of God, we are to love those whom God loved in the manner in which he loved them. And part of that is these five these five attitudes that Paul's listed here, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love. And with those attitudes, we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So when we are loving as Christ loved, we are loving with a love that unifies, that brings things together. So the love of Christ has unified God and man, that vertical relationship, and it has unified man with the fellow man, Jew and Gentile, specifically, as it, as it said in chapter 3. And so the Spirit has already unified us, but we need to be eager to maintain that unity. Uh, in, in John 17, uh, this, there's a passage known as the High Priestly Prayer where Jesus is praying and John's recorded the words. Um, and, he, and Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So the standard that we are given for unity within the church is the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. There is no more unified picture that could possibly be given to us than the Father and the Son. But that is what Christ is praying, that we may be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. But that unity is accomplished through bondage, through the bonds of peace. But not just any peace. In John 14, uh, he says... Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So we have been given the very peace of God to hold us together as a people, as his people called out of the world to walk after him. And so what we see in, in verses 4 through 6 is uh, there's a list here of seven sort of interrelated demonstrations of this unity in our faith. Uh, and this is a list that Paul is pulling out of these three uh, previous chapters. And it's both um, aspirational and descriptive. And so there are some things that, uh, that he lists here that are uh, descriptive. There are examples uh, that we can look to of unity. Um, and then there are items on this list that we see and we acknowledge that they should be examples of unity, but because of our sinful nature, we've fallen short. But these ways that we fall short are temporary because we look forward to Christ's return when he will make all things new. And the ways that we have fallen short, the ways that we have missed the mark 
of his unity will be bridged. They will be rectified, bringing this list to completion. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the one body, uh, this is a reference back to Ephesians 2, uh, specifically verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So every one of us whom Christ has saved, who has been brought to newness of life, is a member of his universal church. Regardless of the names and divisions that divide us here on earth, he has one church of which we are members. And this is one of the pieces that I am most looking forward to in that new creation, is the unification of his body, of every tribe, every tongue, every denomination, all people, all believers worshiping him in unity. I love that. I love that. There is one body. And one spirit. Uh, This is a reference back to um, chapter 2, verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we are bound together as one body by the unity of the spirit. And so these three elements of the triune God, the three elements of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, They are on this list as part of a promise. Just as he is one, we will be one. One body, one spirit. Just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. In Ephesians 1.18 it says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So we have a single great hope in the gospel, a final calling to which we are actively being called. And this is kind of a reverse construction from uh, from verse 1. In verse 1, if you... If you look at it, he's saying, walk in a manner worthy of the election that you are being brought into. And then in verse 4, he's saying, just as you were brought into the hope of your final election, one hope to which we've been called, one Lord. In uh, in Ephesians 1.10, it says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, And then later on in in verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So Christ is both the author of our faith. He's the one who wrote it, the one who created it. But he is also the object and the subject of our faith. He is the one who made our saving faith possible. And that faith has to trust solely and completely in him.
one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. There is no other faith except for faith in Christ that is capable of saving. We can have faith in other things. But that faith would be misguided and misplaced. We have faith in our country. We can have faith in a political or economic system. Faith in our own strengths. Strength and abilities, but faith that is placed in anything other than Christ will fail and it will fall. And so because of that truism, because faith in any other thing will fall, will disappoint you, there is one true faith, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 1, 19 um, and, and 20. Paul talks about uh, the, the working of the great might that God the Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And we talked about this a little bit last week, right? Um, and so while believers around the world might do baptism a little bit differently, what baptism symbolizes, remember our participation in the death and the resurrection of Christ, and our death to sin and newness of life, that idea, that baptism is common across all believers. So there is one baptism, because we all believe that we participate in the death and the resurrection of Christ through our death to sin and that newness of life, that regeneration that happens. One baptism and one God. In Ephesians 3.14, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So there is one God who has created all things, who knows all things, uh, in Colossians 1.17, Paul writes, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is to be the single greatest driver of our worship, the single greatest demonstration of why we are to be unified, because God is one, and he is Father over all, through all, and in all. In 1 Kings 8, uh, this is during the, the dedication of the temple, um, Solomon asks, but will, indeed, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So he's pointing out that there is nothing that God has created that is capable of containing him, that is capable of containing God. The tabernacle couldn't contain God. The temple could not contain God. The church cannot contain God. Our minds cannot contain God. We cannot understand all that God is. And it's only when we truly realize the greatness of God and our smallness as human beings that we are able to worship him. Worship him as he deserves in spirit and in truth, as creator and author and sustainer of life. 
as our Savior and as the soon and coming King. So what does this mean for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling? There's a story that floats around um, where an old Native American is teaching his grandson about life. And he says to his grandson, a fight is going on inside me. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, pride, superiority, and ego. And he continued, the other is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, truth, compassion, and faith. The same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person, too. The grandson thought about it for a minute, and he asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old man simply replied, the one that you feed. So this is an illustration of of a universal truth. We're taught in the Bible to look at it a little bit differently. See, we've been given this description here of Christ as having been the fulfillment of all of these things. And we're given that in contrast to Adam, our earthly father, who acted in opposition to all of these ideas. If you remember the story in in Genesis 3, Adam acted in pride rather than humility because he valued his own interpretation of the situation over obedience and trust in who God was and what God had said. He acted in impatience and in anger when he was confronted with his his sin. Remember, he immediately began, began shifting blame, first to Eve and then to God. He failed to bear Eve's burdens by allowing her to sin, failed to bear his own burden by accepting his responsibility, blaming Eve and God who were the only two other beings in existence. And he tried to blame them both for his own sin. He failed to maintain unity by doing that. And so as Adam acted in the garden, he built up that dividing wall that we talked about from uh, from chapter 2. That dividing wall between God and man. and The dividing wall that exists between man and his fellow man. But who Adam failed to be in the garden, Christ succeeded in being on the cross and in doing so made a way home for us, a way to be restored to relationship to God and to each other. And so for the Christian, it's not about the two wolves that live inside of us. But we need to look at every single interaction that we have with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and even our interactions with the world around us. Because we choose whose example do we follow. Do we follow Adam's example? Or do we follow Christ's example? We choose which wolf to feed. So this is where it starts to get a little uncomfortable, a little gritty, right? So when the church makes a decision that you don't agree with, 
How do you respond? Is it by grumbling? Talking around after the fact to try and see who's on your side and who you might be able to complain about? Or do you buckle down and admit that I might be wrong, which is humility, and support the rest of the body as they move forward, which is patience and forbearance? When the church isn't moving in the direction that you'd like or as fast as you'd like, what do you do? Do you stay home? Do you start looking for another church? I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go home. Or do you lay down your life in humility and gentleness to help your brothers and sisters grow in fear and admonition of the Lord? Do you bear with one another? When you're offended by something that is said or by something that is left unsaid, and you will be offended, if you've ever met people, you're going to be offended somewhere along the way. Are you going to respond with anger and resentment? Or do you allow love to cover that wrong and to be bound together by the peace that comes from our shared faith in Jesus Christ? It's a hard thing to live together. Regardless of what scale or what the context is, it's a hard thing to live together. It's hard to live in community with each other. And that difficulty comes from our flesh, our following after Adam. When we're prideful, domineering, impatient, dismissive, and divisive. But we are called as Christians, in spite of that flesh, to walk in a different way. To walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling of our hope. To walk after Christ. To lay aside our privileges, just as he did. To better love and to serve other people. Because remember, there was never another person who was ever more deserving of honor and glory than he was. But still, he laid that all aside for our benefit. And so we need to be prepared to lay aside the filthy rags that we think make us worthy of honor and glory. In the light of the calling to which we have been called. We are not, as Christians, to insist upon doing what is best for us, but what is glorifying to God. How do we show God's glory to the world? How do we build up other believers? How do we build up his church? And we do that by laying aside our pride and viewing others as more important than ourselves. We lay aside our expectations of efficiency and efficacy to love people where they are, to love them with the love of Christ, to remember that we too once walked in the flesh. We were and are abrasive and offensive and sinful, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive in Christ. Because we were sinners, we should bear with other sinners in grace and in mercy and in humility. So which wolf do you feed? Who are you following after in your thoughts 
and your attitudes? Are you following after the way that was laid down by Adam? Or are you following after the way that was laid down by Christ? Who is being glorified by my choices? Myself or God? Who is being served by my choices? Am I serving myself? Am I doing what is best for me? Or am I doing what is best for other people? Do I follow Adam or do I follow Christ? Let's pray. Father, our hearts are sinful. We seek after our own comfort, our own edification, our own glorification, God. And we do that time and time again. Even when we know that it is only you who is worthy of glory and honor. It is only you that we should be seeking after. It's a challenge. It's hard, God, sometimes to seek after you, to walk in this way that you are calling to walk. But you are faithful to give us strength, faithful to give us endurance and perseverance to continue on, to sanctify us. And Father, we look forward to that day when that work is complete on your return. We look forward to that day when we are able to worship you truly and see you fully, God. We thank you for the promise. We thank you for the hope that we have in that day, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.